Michael Ginsburg, lead the way. Michael Ginsburg is the most entertaining character in Mad Men. With his season 5 entry to the series, we are introduced to a man who is as abrasive and bizarre as he is charming. And we see this in the eccentric performative theater that makes up both his pitches and his personality. Alan Ginsberg? He's the most famous Ginsberg there is. I figured we gotta be related somehow. <laughs> and what's he gonna say? <laughs> in a lot of ways, Ginsberg was made to be an advertiser. Underneath the socially awkward, idiosyncratic parts he outwardly displays is this fiery creative passion that is so dynamic and innovative to the point it could be hard to tell whether he's a crazy genius or just plain crazy. He is the Mad Men exemplified, a character who lies at the intersection of unfettered creative ambition and over-the-top foolhardiness, defining characteristics of one insane enough to enter the ad business in the first place. It's because of these characteristics and not in spite of them that we not only love Ginsburg as he's introduced to us, but we love him through his many phases, as the layers beneath them are revealed and we bear witness to the inward man. But what attracts us to Ginsburg in the first place is the outward man. Ginsburg wears his idiosyncrasy on his sleeve, constantly towing the lines between social awkwardness and extroverted oversharing, positioning him uniquely apart from the rest of the Mad Men cast. This is very provocative. Oh, that one. I was at the movies. Well, not the movies. I was in Times Square at a peep show. Shouldn't we wait for Roger? For what? He doesn't even come to the meetings that are important. And his pitching style is fueled by his vivacious and lively personality in a way that is theatrical and captivating. Listen to how he crafts this narrative for an ad about shoes. I mean, she's running down this dark side street, and it's outside a castle, so it's got those walls and, and the cobblestones. And, and she's running, but she's only got this one incredible shoe for her incredible gown, so she's hobbling, wounded prey. She can hear him behind her, his measured footsteps catching up. She turns a corner, those big shadows, and she's scared. And then she, she feels a hand on her shoulder, and she turns around, and it doesn't matter what he looks like. He's handsome at that moment, offering her her shoe. She takes it. She knows she's not safe, but she doesn't care. I guess we know in the end, she wants to be caught. The earnest emotion he conveys is truly chilling, and unlike Don, whose commanding screen presence is born from his authority and swagger, Ginsburg dazzles every time he's on the screen because of his willingness to say whatever's on his mind. He has this quick-paced, lively sort of unfiltered wit that at times has nearly cost him his job. This in stark contrast to Don's more measured, poised attitude towards his copywork. But Ginsburg and Draper are both idea men, inherently and they make for an interesting foil pair. Draper as the sexy, idealized admin, Ginsburg as the artful dynamo. Maybe Draper feels threatened by him because in Ginsburg's starry eyes and youthful vigor, he sees himself. A young gun with ambition and prowess, that spark that can really only come from a rookie who's been told he's in over his head, and then sets out to prove those naysayers wrong. 
What we witness in their relationship is two men cut from the same cloth, but born of different generations, with different approaches towards making advertising a means to an end. If you've seen Mad Men, you know the troubled past that haunts Don's life as a Korean war deserter who took up the identity of another man. And in the aftermath of that, he's able to reconvene into society, conform to this idealistic picture of Don Draper, and fit in so well that the people around him never question his past, never get to see the darker horrors, the central truth of Dick Whitman. Ginsburg carries past trauma too, but he doesn't hide it by becoming someone else. He buries the lead in a lot of ways by almost overdoing how specifically unique he is. Ginsburg's unwillingness to conform to basic social etiquette rules or the expected standards of the advertising game shows us his rebellious nature, but it also tells us a lot about how he carries his internal pain beneath the surface. This pain is detailed in his origin story. We are obsessed with the origin story, with how the heroes we look up to and revere came to be. It's within these origin stories that the nature of their character is contextualized. Their purpose or intentions are given depth and added complexity. Now, in American comic books, this concept is generally explored in how characters gain their superpowers, or revealing the catalysts that cause them to take up the hero or villain moniker in the first place. But more so than any of this, the origin story is the interweaving narrative of a person's world as we know it. They entertain the reasonings behind why certain things or people have such distinct, unique qualities. Why is Ginsburg the way that he is? What drives the machinations of his mind, even if it's just faintly beating in the background? Well, the harrowing truth of the matter is that Ginsburg was born in a concentration camp, to a mother who died soon after having him. At the age of five, he was brought to a Swedish orphanage where the man he calls his father, Morris Ginsburg, adopted him, and he was old enough to remember it. And then I got this one communication. A simple order. Stay where you are. Are there others like you? I don't know. I haven't been able to find any. Ginsburg is displaced. He feels like an alien alone in the world, unable to fit in or quantify his experience as being human. A child born of post-war circumstances who inherently can't grow up to lead a normal life. A child born to not conform. In a lot of ways, Ginsburg is a paragon for the Beat Generation, a counterculture subgroup born of the 50s and 60s whose central ideals revolved around the rejection of standard values and the narrative being fed to America in our religion, our ideals of economic materialism, and our explicit portrayal of human sexuality, the wonderful, weird ways of the world. These people so staunchly rejected what the world presented to them because the world wasn't made for them. They were beaten down and cast aside by the powers that be, so rather than try to fit the mold of conformity, they reveled in being uniquely themselves. And while Ginsburg's willingness to be the most brash, honest version of himself was a testament to how he operates in the confines of his own world, those central feelings of being displaced are what inevitably drive him to the edge of his sanity. Ginsburg's saga starts to take a drastic turn in the final season. As the 60s come to a close and the characters are ushered into the 70s, we witness Ginsburg's characteristics of skepticism towards authority and power, and his feelings of being opposed become the more central driving forces to his character arc. Michael begins to realize the almost oxymoronic nature of his existence, 
a creative beatnik type figure, someone who is a nonconformist, artistically skilled individual who is working in advertising and the media of mass consumption and lies. He is internally distraught by this. I'm not scared. I'm a thug. I'm a pig. I'm part of the problem. Now I am become death, destroyer of worlds. Listen, man. I can't turn off the transmissions to do harm. They're beaming them right into my head. Damn it! There is no harm in this. Manischewitz are good people. They're your people. And they sell wine for religious ceremonies of all faiths. Now pull yourself together and be the man that I admire. And this internal conflict is spearheaded by an external force he believes is coming for not only him, but everyone at his job. As Sterling Cooper begins to industrialize and change form for the modern age, the addition of a computer room in the office ends up displacing members of the creative team out of their central space. Ginsburg is wary of this. He sees this as a sign of worse things to come. A future where people like him are erased, deemed as less valuable than our computer counterparts. We have those own fears in our modern society, with increasing technological prowess and access to AI and advanced machinery, it can be really scary to think that robots could one day replace human intelligence, especially in a field seemingly so innately based on human connections and interactions like advertising. But Ginsburg begins to become haunted by this machine. The faint hum it makes getting into his head, he comes to asinine conclusions that the machine makes men around it become homosexual. He cuts off his nipple, gifting it to someone as a way to relieve the pressure built up inside him. The unfurling of his world comes crashing down around him, and what was once a charming creative genius is reduced to the hollow shell of a man whose skepticism and paranoia have gotten the better of him. A situation that has arisen not because of the machine, but through the machine's being, was able to awake Ginsburg's own unresolved trauma and fears. What brings brilliant thinkers to madness? What could make a man jump off a bridge or drink themselves to death or tear their clothes in protests in the streets? These questions were all asked and answered by Ginsburg, not Michael, but a different Ginsburg. Alan Ginsburg. In Alan Ginsburg's poem, Howl, he explores this idea of the character Moloch as an answer to the many questions revolving around madness and breaking from society. And Moloch's identity is a summation of three parts. The industrial machine, governmental authority, and the internal battle, all of which contribute to Michael Ginsburg's own downfall. Heavy machinery over industrialization, factories of fog and smoke, these all represented to Alan the force that controlled workers to sacrifice their own thoughts and minds and personal goals towards goals of an industrial efficiency, our own humanity sacrificed. Molnock represents authority, the government enforcement of social norms, fear-mongering, implanting in our heads haughty nationalism and pride in our country and its military might. But the most integral thing Molnock represents is that internal struggle, madness that exists within us. It's one thing to be destroyed by society and another to have that destruction attributed to self-infliction. It's easy to blame the forces around us, the agony and frustration on the experience society burdened us with to the machines that came to replace us, to the authority figures and their need to control us. But oftentimes it's the forces of self-destruction, unforeseeable, uncontrollable forces of self-destruction, that lead the geniuses of our world, the most forward thinkers and creators, the greatest minds of a generation, to falter in seemingly unexplainable circumstances. Michael Ginsburg's character is a meditation on these ideas. 
him feeling like a force is out to get him constantly runs through his head as he deteriorates throughout the season and enters a psychotic breakdown. And it's truly a sad course of events to watch. This man who was alone in the world, uniquely displaced since his very origin, was now old enough, mature enough to fear for his life when that force of displacement came for him again. When his creative passion and his agency was threatened by authority figures, by industrialization, by his own disillusionment about whether or not what he was doing was morally decrepit. The reason I love Ginsburg so much is because I can relate to him. My generation is made up of members who have felt lost, unconnected to their parents and authority figures because of the societal pressures cast upon them, unable to conform to the standards of a past generation, wildly creative and free, unshackled and unburdened. But we do carry a burden, oftentimes not addressing the underlying trauma or circumstances that cause us to feel so alone in the world, to feel so misunderstood. And so Ginsburg's fate serves as a dark omen to us. A possible future for a lonely sect. The story of the creative dynamo's humanity unraveled. But I don't think we're afraid of this. Maybe it's because we learned at such an early age to hide our fear as well. So removed from reality that we're unable to understand the stakes of the horrific things we may be in store for. Or maybe it's that we're so hypersensitive to the world around us coming to the conclusion that there most likely won't be a future for anybody, let alone for us. But I think the reason we aren't afraid of unraveling is that we, to a certain extent, already are unraveled. And now the best we can do in response to that is to accept ourselves as we truly are, as aliens, creatures not of this world but apart from it, the displaced, the lost, the isolated and alone, in search of a place to call home, on this planet or the next. fine if you don't believe me, but that's where I'm from. I'm a full-blooded Martian. Mind Theater is a solo effort produced and run by me, Ao Akinbade. To subscribe, look for Mind Theater on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For updates on the show and upcoming episodes, follow Mind Theater Pod on Twitter. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.